Psalm 45, beginning with the title, To the Choir Master, According to Lilies, a Maskell of the Sons of Korah, a Love Song. By the way, that is the longest title of any psalm, and it is intentionally a four-part introduction. And then the psalm goes like this. My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. In your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the hearts of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God... Your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. At your right hand stands the queen in gold of Ophir. Hear, O daughter, and consider. Incline your ear, forget your people in your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. Since he is your Lord, bow to him. The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts, the richest of the people. All glorious is the princess in her chamber with robes interwoven with gold and many colored robes. She is led to the king with her virgin companions following behind her with joy and gladness. They are led along as they enter the palace of the king. In place of your fathers shall be your sons. You will make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. This ends the reading of God's word this evening. Well, if someone were to ask you, why did God create the world? I would guess that most of us would take the shortcut and the the cliff notes, and we would cite the Westminster Shorter Catechism question one for his own glory. And, and that is certainly true, and that is one of the most profound truths that we could ever verbalize to someone. But there are other reasons why God created the world. Jonathan Edwards actually wrote a book called The End for Which God Created the World. And in that book, he gave what we would say are ultimate, for his own glory, and then penultimate reasons why God created the world. One of those reasons is because God wants to display his attributes. So in creating a world that he ordained to fall, God displays now his justice in punishing the wicked and his mercy and grace in in redeeming his people. Um, God is displaying his attributes for his own glory. But Jonathan Edwards gives another reason, and one that maybe you've never thought about before. And what Edwards essentially says is that God created the world for his son, that he might have a bride for him, and that the son might bestow the excellencies of his love on his bride, and they might mutually rejoice in the love they have for one another for all of eternity. That's profound. God created the world that he might have a bride for his son. 
So in redeeming a people out of the nations, he was redeeming a bride for them. And so it shouldn't strike us as strange that the Bible has a theme of bride and bridegroom running throughout from Genesis to Revelation. Um, it is, it is the, one of the major themes of the Bible. When Jesus comes, remember John the Baptist speaks of him and he says, he who has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices that the bridegroom's voice is heard. And he's speaking about the Lord Jesus. And Jesus, right in the middle of the Bible, at the beginning of his messianic ministry, in his first miracle, he does the, the miracle of the water to wine at the wedding in Cana of Galilee. Here's the bridegroom. He's come. And then the Bible closes with that picture of the bride being prepared for her husband and being presented to him, the church being presented in fine linen and brought before the king. And, and as it were, heaven coming down to earth, to the new heavens and the new earth. And there's going to be a great consummate wedding when Christ is wed to his people for all of eternity. A great celebration in the union and communion forever of the lamb and his bride who he's purchased with his blood. In fact, so important is this, that if we want to understand anything about marriage, we can only really and truly do so through the lens of Christ's love for the church, the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 5. That if I want to understand what it looks like to be a, a husband in a way that's honoring to God, I can only learn that if I see the dying love of the heavenly bridegroom laying down his life for his bride. And if wives want to learn what it looks like to be God-honoring wives before the Lord, they do so by looking at how the church responds to Christ, the Apostle Paul says. And so it shouldn't be an enormous stretch for us to come to a psalm like Psalm 45 and to understand that this psalm is messianic. There have been tremendous interpretive debates about this psalm over the years. There have been many who have sought to empty it of its messianic character. They, they have said, well, this psalm is just about David. Others have said this is about Solomon and his marriage to uh, the daughter of um, uh, the Queen of Sheba. That, that this is a picture of Solomon and she. And then some have gone further and said this psalm is a, a marriage psalm about Solomon, but Solomon is a type of Christ. And then others saying this is about Ahab and Israel. And, and there are many, many ways people have tried to explain this. However, um, there, is a very, there is a very clear Christological focus of this psalm when we read Hebrews chapter 1 where verses out of this psalm are lifted out, and the writer of Hebrews says that God the Father is speaking to God the Son, and he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever a scepter of righteousness, is the scepter of your kingdom. And that is the very language used in this psalm of the king in his glory and beauty. Um, I actually think that we have this psalm without knowing its historical context so that we can fully understand that it is about the Messiah, that this is uniquely about the Messiah. Um, Jonathan Edwards, and I'll come back to this at, in a moment, but in his last entry in a book uh, called Notes on Scripture, it was his sort of personal commentary on Scripture, his last entry in that work is a comparison of all of the teaching of Psalm 45 and the Song of Solomon and how they perfectly parallel each other so that we would read the Song of Solomon Christologically, as we ought to. 
And here, the, the writer of this psalm, and we don't know who it is, and, and we're not even sure if he's given us the title in it or if it's been later added, but it is, notice the last of those four descriptions there in the title, it is a love song. It is a nuptial song. It is a song about a wedding and everything that is leading up to that wedding and everything that takes place in it. And it is meant to stir up the desires of those who are singing this song. It, it's meant to stir up their desires. You know, I am a sucker for a good love song. Not, not cheesy ones, folky ones. And uh, when I was young, there was almost nothing better than a good folk love song. Well, you know, God has given us love songs in the Bible to help us understand the Lord Jesus Christ, to stir up in us desires for him. Because at the end of the day, what you need, and I don't need to know where anyone is right now in life, but what I need and what you need is to have your affection stirred up to desire Jesus. We, we, we never desire him enough. We never love him enough. Um, we never meditate on him enough. And so this psalm is a love song to stir up within us a desire to come to and delight in the glorious king, the heavenly bridegroom. So I want us to consider just two things here briefly tonight as we look at this. First, I want us to consider the glory and beauty of the king. And you'll see that in verses 1 through 9. And then I want us to consider the glory and beauty of the royal bride, the glory and beauty of the king, and then the glory and beauty of the royal bride. Well, notice the writer can't wait to tell us what's going on. He, he, he uses this great introduction. My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready writer. He, he's essentially saying, and, and we know this because we know our theology, that the Holy Spirit has so um, inspired what we're about to read in him, has so given this to him by way of revelation, it's as if he can't contain what he's received. And so he is so full of meditations on the Messiah. He is so full of, of what he wants to say. He says, my heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I love that. It's one of my favorite introductions to any psalm. I can't wait to tell you the song that God has given me to help you understand the coming Christ. And then notice he says, I address my verses to the king. And so this song is a song that he's singing to this to the king. It's about the king. It's it's certainly um, descriptive of the king, but it's declarative. He's declaring the praises of the king to the king and. And notice what he says in verse 2 as he begins this declaration of praise. He says, you are, and I love the way the New King James translates this, you are the fairest of the sons of men. You are the fairest of the sons of men. One of the reasons I don't think this is about Solomon, though there is a good case to be made that it was about Solomon, is because Solomon was not the fairest of the sons of men. You could ask his thousand Wives and concubines. Um, <laughs> Solomon was not chief among 10,000, as the Song of S Songs speaks of the beloved bridegroom. There is only one who is fairer than the sons of men. There is only one. 
There is only one who is the most glorious and beautiful of the sons of men. And one of the really interesting things, one of the things we really have to take away is that there's not one physical description of this king bridegroom. It's all the excellencies of his person, his words, his work, his reign, his rule, what he does, who he is. None of it a physical description. I've always been astonished by that. People have a penchant to want to have images of Jesus constantly. And, you know, Isaiah said there was no form or beauty that if we saw him, we should desire him. If we, if we could have an image of Jesus, he, he wouldn't look anything like what we would imagine. And, and nothing about his physical appearance in the flesh is the thing itself, is the glory and the beauty of him. But notice that the writer is going to talk, first of all, about the glory of his mediatorial work. So as he sets this out, there's going to be a progression. He's going to give us his mediatorial work. Then he's going to talk about his mediatorial reign. Then he's going to talk about his mediatorial joy. And then he's going to talk about his mediatorial beauty. He's going to move from his work to his reign, to his joy, to his beauty. And notice the first thing that he says about the Lord Jesus, and we know it's the Lord Jesus. They are looking forward to the coming Christ. But the first thing about his beauty is that grace was poured upon his lips. Grace is poured upon your lips. It's his word. You know, I love in the Gospel of John when the Pharisees send officers to take Jesus and it's the Feast of Tabernacles and they hear him teaching and then they go back to the Pharisees without him. And the Pharisees are like, why haven't you brought him? And they're like, no man ever spoke like this man spoke. Grace is poured upon your lips. Think about that. They were sent on a mission. They come back without him. They say, nobody ever spoke like this man. No one has ever spoken like the Lord Jesus. Grace is put on your lips. Think about think about that great invitation in, in Matthew 11. It's, it's some of my favorite scripture. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Who's not weary and heavy laden over our sin, over our failures, over the world, over the miseries of life? Come to me, and I will give you rest for your souls. Who can say that to you? I can't say that to you. You can't say that to me. Um, Jesus says, come to me, I will give you rest for your souls. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. You will find rest for your soul. Isn't that beautiful? Grace is poured upon your lips, the writer says. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Now, there is a sort of cause and effect throughout this section, and you don't want to miss that. The writer will often tell us something about the coming king, the redeemer, and then he'll tell us what the end result is because of that. Grace is poured upon your lips, therefore God has blessed you forever. And then a little later down, he'll say, you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness, therefore, verse 7, therefore God your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness. There is a meritoriousness to the saving work of Jesus. What this king is doing, he is being rewarded for doing. And he is doing it on behalf of his people. So everything that Jesus does, he is rewarded for by his father as the representative of his people, as the mediator. Isn't that marvelous? We, we need to be reminded of that 
all the time. Because we have a tendency to shift into legal righteousness mode every single day of our life. Um, The second we start talking negatively of others, and I wouldn't do that, legal righteousness mode. We, we, we just downshift into legalism. And, and the Bible's holding out Christ and saying, here is the glorious one you need. And he's rewarded for what he does on your behalf. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. And then we're told that this king is a warrior. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. He is coming to battle. He is glorious and beautiful because he comes to make war. He comes to make war against Satan and sin and death. He comes into the world conquering and to conquer. See, this king is coming to do something. He's he's just doesn't have grace on his lips. He is going to to fight against all of his people's enemies. You you know, David and Goliath, you know the story so well. One thing that I didn't know growing up is that that was a picture of the representative warfare between Christ and the evil one. There's only two people fighting, David and Goliath. And whoever wins, wins for their people. They're representing them. The seed of the woman, the seed of the serpent, That is a prelude to Jesus going against the evil one. Here the king is coming. He's got a sword on his thigh, a metaphor for him coming in might and power, in splendor and majesty. Notice verse 4. In your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Think about Christ. Everything he did was for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. And then notice He says in verse 5, your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The people fall under you. Um, He he comes to bring a people to himself, in subjection to himself, by going to the cross. Now, you don't know how he's going to win this battle at this point. But we know it's by laying down his life as the king, right? When he's... When he's on the cross, what does is, what is the sign over him say? This is the king. This is the king. Here's your king, the king of the Jews. And he's there. And he's, he's making war against my sin and your sin. He's hanging on the tree to make war against our sin, against the enemies of Almighty God. And then there is the glory and beauty of his reign. What happens after he makes war? He rises from the dead. He ascends to heaven. What happens when he enters into the heavenly uh, throne room? He sits down on the throne. That's the language of the New Testament. He's seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. He sat down at the right hand of his father. He is seated. That, That language denotes the posture of completion, fulfillment. Why does the New Testament say he's seated? Because he finished the work the father gave him to do. There's no more work for him to do except to intercede for his people. He is reigning. And and here's where the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 1 picks up on this language. And, and he says that the father is speaking here. And the father is saying to the son, if you want a big word and you're not too tired tonight, it's called prosological. They're having a prosological dialogue with each other. The father is saying to the son. Your throne, O God. Who is the king? 
He's God. Isn't that awesome? This king, this messianic king is God. And God is saying to God, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness because this one would be sinless. You know, um, this week, a well-known media news anchor person said, you know, even Jesus wasn't perfect. No, he was per- very perfect. Very, very, very perfect. Sinless, actually. <laughs> Without a single flaw. Wow. Loved righteousness. Think about that. We love sin by nature. We love evil. He comes to be the mediatorial king who loves righteousness. Notice the second part of verse 7 Therefore, God, and I think the father's still addressing the son. Therefore, God, he's calling the son God, your God. (laughs) There's only one God, multiplicity of persons. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Now, very briefly, this is speaking of the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Christ was anointed with the spirit, Peter says. At his baptism, the spirit came down on him. He cast out demons by the spirit. He offered himself up on the cross by the eternal spirit, the writer of Hebrews says. And he was raised by the spirit from his conception by the spirit to his resurrection, to his ascension, to the outpouring of the spirit. He is the anointed one. The father anoints the son with the spirit. Because he did all that he did and finished the work of redemption. Now, the writer is going to tell us just two more things about the glory and beauty of the king. The first, he speaks of his joy. He says, you've been anointed with the oil of gladness more than your companions. What makes Jesus happy? What makes Jesus joyful? Knowing that his blood atoned for your sins brings him joy. What brings the heart of Jesus joy? The writer of Hebrews says, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. You know what brings the king's heart joy? Knowing that he has laid down his life for you and is going to bring you to him. That, that, that fills his heart with joy. We, we can't even comprehend that. What, what must that be? The internal joy of Jesus to be with you and to have done everything to make that possible. And yet that's what the scripture says. And, and then notice the fourth thing is his, is his beauty or his allurement. And this is the real crux of this section. Um, the, the, the writer is wanting to stir us up to desire Jesus Christ. And so now he talks about his garments. Notice this. All your robes are fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. Okay, so listen to this. In the Proverbs, the immoral woman perfumes her bed with myrrh and aloes and frankincense. So that's the symbolic language of alluring people in. Sin is alluring. And and the language of fragrance in the Bible is used symbolically to talk about alluring. Well, here it's applied to the king. The king is going to allure his people to himself. And so it shouldn't surprise us that as Jesus is going to the cross, 
and he's in the home of Mary, and she is breaking the alabaster flask on him to anoint him, prepare him for his burial. And John says in John 12, the whole room was filled with the fragrance. I think there's a double entendre there. The room was physically filled with the presence, and the aroma of Christ was filling the room. And then it shouldn't surprise us that when he's buried, at the end of John's gospel, he is prepared with spices, myrrh and aloes. Um, I think this is pointing us to that, that, that all that Jesus has done for us, it, it diffuses an alluring aroma, aroma so that we'll come to him, so that we'll go to him. Secondly, and very briefly, I want us to consider the glory and beauty of the royal bride. There is a, a quick turn now. There's, there is the setting forth of the king's glory. And now, notice that the writer seems to be speaking to his daughter. He, he, he seems to be preparing his daughter for this king. He tells her, essentially, get your heart ready. I love this. He, he says, look... You, basically, you love your father's house. You love your people. You love where you're from. You love what, what what you have. Prepare your heart. He says, hear, O daughter, and consider, incline your ear. Forget your people. Forget your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. She is she is being prepared. This is this is the gospel call. This is saying, hear, listen. Forget whatever things weigh you down, and come to the king. He will desire your beauty. This is a gospel invitation. This is the father preparing his daughter to come to the Redeemer. This is God speaking to the members of his church saying, listen and come. Um, This is the call to come. And then notice um, she is told he's to be worshipped and that gifts are to be brought if she would come, that she would share in his reign, that she would be made a partaker of what is his. And then this is awesome. And then there is the glory and the beauty of the bride. She's come. We're to get that sense in between verse 12 and 13. She has come. She has become the bride. She is united to the king. And notice this. All glorious is the princess in her chamber with robes interwoven with gold and many colored robes. She is led to the king with her virgin companions following behind her with joy and gladness. They are led along as they enter the palace of the king. What's interesting is that she has been given these things. These weren't things that were hers by virtue of where she came from or who she is. These are all things that have been gifted to her by the king to prepare her to be brought to the king. Um, Nothing that we have is from ourselves, if it's good, if there's any good. Paul says, I know that nothing good dwells in me. Um, And yet, as, as the Song of Solomon says and the Shulamite says, I am dark but lovely. I am full of sin. And yet, I'm loved by the Redeemer. The King loves me, and he has bestowed his beauty and glory on me. He has has given me his spirit. He is working 
his character into me. He is transforming me for his own delight and pleasure. And, and then notice, notice this. With joy and gladness, they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. Remember, the king had gladness in his heart more than his companions. Now those who come to him have gladness. This is amazing. Everyone is having joy and gladness because of who Christ is. Um, I love the parables of the prodigal son and the lost coin and the lost sheep. I love that, the, the crescendo where it's, there's joy that the sinners come home. There's joy in heaven. Come rejoice with me. My son was lost and now he's found. Come rejoice with me. There's, there's to be joy. Um, that ought to be expressive in our lives. You know, Chuck and I often joke about um, people that won't smile or um, express any kind of external joy. And, you know, the joy's in my heart. Well, it doesn't look like it. <laughs> We're to be joyful people. Now, I understand glibness is not joy, but joy overflows, right? Joyfulness results in us joyfully singing to the king. You do that here. Joyfully calling on him, joyfully speaking of him, joyfully encouraging each other. I need more joy in my life. My wife is saying amen. <laughs> I need more joy. You need more joy. Here's where we get it. The Lord Jesus gives us everything that's his. As we come to him, he beautifies us by his spirit, making us more holy, more like him, more ready for him. And then notice this. There is the fruit of this um, union between the king and the bride, his church. Notice verse 16. And this is one of those very enigmatic sayings in the Bible. The place of your fathers, in the place of your fathers, shall be your sons. You will make them princes over all the earth. Now, what does he mean by that? In the place of your fathers will be your sons. You will make them princes over all the earth. Here's what I think it means. I think what he's speaking about is the Old Testament saints who would go before the coming Christ. And, and so when the Bible speaks about the fathers, it speaks about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Israelites, all our fathers passed through the sea. And the writer is anticipating the day when the king comes, when the redeemer comes and says all of his fathers are going to be his sons. He's going to make them sons and princes in the earth because he is going to redeem them. He is greater than them. Before Abraham was, I am. Instead of your fathers shall be your sons, who you will make princes in the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Listen, Jesus ascended to heaven 2,000 years ago. And on Sunday night, July 12th, 2020, we are remembering his name in this place. That's awesome. Your name will be remembered in all the earth, in all generations. Therefore, nations, nations will praise you forever. And ever. Right now, Jesus is receiving his mediatorial reward because of his glory and his beauty, because of his work and his reign, because of his joy, because of his allurement in drawing sinners to himself. I want to leave you with this thought tonight. Um, if you feel as though you've left your first love, if, um, if, 
Maybe you feel stale spiritually. I have been there. Um, This is the remedy. To meditate often on what we have in our heavenly bridegroom. That's the remedy. Think often of Christ as the bride. You know, it's very interesting. The, 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 The bride, think often of the bridegroom. The bride doesn't think of herself. She's thinking of the king. I love the way Samuel Rutherford puts it. In, in that great hymn, The Sands of Time Are Sinking, the bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on my king of grace, not at the crown he gifteth, but on his pierced hands. The lamb is all the glory in Emmanuel's land. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we pray that you would stir us up. How often... Our eyes are dim. How often, Lord Jesus, we miss your glory and your beauty. And you are glorious and you are beautiful. No man has ever spoken like you. You came conquering the evil one and our sin and death itself. And you have gone to the right hand of the Father victorious. We thank you that you have redeemed us and drawn us to yourself We thank you that you have given us robes of righteousness. We pray that you would confer your glory and beauty on us, that you would conform us to your image, and that you would prepare us for that great day, that great consummate wedding day, when you will be forever wed to your bride, the church. Lord Jesus, would you work in us to give us joy and gladness in the meditation of these truths. We pray these things in your name. Amen.